0: Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. You are listening to 3TBLA. This is a science program, and today we're going to be talking with some amazing researchers from around the country. They are the finalists of the FameLab competition. Now, if you haven't come across FameLab before, FameLab is a program where researchers, early career researchers, have to present their work with nothing but a prop for three minutes in front of a live audience. It's an amazing program. We get a huge very Variation in the types of work that come through in this contest and I was lucky enough to speak to some of the finalists who recently competed in the grand final in Perth and today we'll be hearing from four of them which is going to be super cool. So hang around, uh, enjoy the show and hopefully you will be as impressed with these individuals as I am. I'm Dr Shane and today I'm joined by Cynthia Diamanti. From the Centre for Pharmaceutical Innovation at the University of South Australia, Cynthia, welcome to the studio
1: thanks Shane. It's good to be here.
0: <laughs> good to talk to you now uh, you work in the area of of cancer treatments. This is something that's obviously a very a very big concern for many people and and for many years, part of the benchmark has been chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. what is what is uh, i suppose the good and bad of chemotherapy obviously it's very effective but you know we hear many stories about the side effects so talk us through how chemotherapy works and Mm -hmm. what the problems are with it
1: yeah definitely so yeah as you kind of touched on chemotherapy is great in that it has the potential to kill cancer cells it's they're very potent um but at the same time because they're so potent they and they can attack both cancer cells as well as healthy cells. Um, you can imagine that there's an array of side effects, basically, that occur um, due to that. So um, that being said, we want to find some way to better um, make these more targeted um, um, for cancer cells.
0: Yeah, and and when, when we talk about side effects, I mean, what what sort of things that we are we talking about? Because chemotherapy is essentially a poison, is that right?
1: Yeah, basically. Um, so it really depends on the drug. Um, I know that. Some have things like nephrotoxicity, so damage to your kidneys. Um, obviously, things like hair loss are also a, a big, well-known one as well. Nausea, pain, um, you know, nerve damage. There's yeah, and organ toxicity as well. So really, it's these kind of off-target effects that drive um, those side effects to occur.
0: Yeah, and I suppose too, it depend would depend very heavily on where you have the cancer as to how effective chemotherapy can be. I'm, I'm assuming. In the brain, we have a particular problem. Is that right?
1: Yeah, definitely. So you know, there's lots of different biological barriers that are at play uh, when you deliver these drugs, and the brain, as you mentioned, is a really particularly tough one. Um, I know that there have been there's been a lot of work in the past few decades to try overcome those barriers, but yeah, it is very challenging.
0: <laughs> yeah, so presumably that means you have to put a lot more of the chemotherapy drug into the system to get a small amount of it through to the brain or to other locations where it's difficult to to get that flow happening
1: yeah absolutely and there are also things like you know some of these drugs are not very stable in the bloodstream or might get cleared quite quickly Um, all of these things kind of limit um, the drugs getting to where they actually need to be so that's a big challenge as well
0: oh yeah so they actually some of these drugs actually break down before they're clinically effective
1: yeah so like they can get broken down by things like enzymes or ph depending on how they're administered um so yeah definitely degradation is a big part of that as well
0: yeah so now you're looking at a completely different way to administer these these sorts of drugs so under the sort of banner of i suppose nano encapsulation would be the the, the phrase so t- tell us about that did, what what do we mean by nano encapsulation? size what does it look like
1: Yeah, so basically a nanoparticle, kind of as the name suggests, is just a very, very small particle and there's lots of different kinds of nanoparticles. Um, The ones that I work on in particular are called polymeric nanoparticles, uh, which are essentially particles that are made up of polymers. Um, Polymers, in case you don't know, are very, very long molecules. Um, You can think of them kind of like a chain um, and those Chains kind of aggregate in a particular way to allow them to be um, to be used as drug carriers, basically.
0: Hmm. So in this sense, the you're creating like a sheath or a, a surrounding barrier for the drug. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So the polymers that we use, so if you can imagine, we have these really long chains, and, and the cool thing about them is we can start to design them in such a way that particular parts of the chain have different properties. So, for example, half of the chain might really love water. It might be what we call hydrophilic. And the other half of the chain might really hate water, what we call hydrophobic. So the really interesting thing is because those two parts of the chain have such different properties, but they're still connected to each other. When we put them in a water-based system, let's say like blood, then those groups that don't like water, really try their best to get away from it. And they they aggregate with one another. And that kind of forms this really unique kind of core that um separates the um those sections from the, the water environment. So yeah.
0: Yeah. So so that so essentially you're taking all these little parts, but they would, you know, they kind of shield themselves from the external environment. So they're traveling through the blood or whatever part of the body. What makes them release the drug that needs to be released That's been protected? And, you know, how do you determine where that would be and sort of control that?
1: Yeah, so I guess one thing that I didn't touch on before was a lot of chemotherapy drugs, um, because they also really don't like water, they can nestle themselves into that uh, the core that I spoke about, right? And so what I do in my work basically is I take those polymers and I put special chemical groups on them, so that when they make it into an acidic environment, they can sense that it's more acidic and then they become protonated, or in other words, they gain a positive charge. And then when those polymers have that positive charge, they want to repel each other, kind of similar to how the same poles of a magnet might want to repel one another. And those positive charges force the nanoparticle to break apart and the drugs that were previously hidden inside the core have nowhere to go they have to then escape and that's kind of the basis of how we release the drug
0: yeah so where in the body i mean my obvious thoughts goes immediately to the stomach but where do we find a a more acidic environment
1: yeah that's a good question um so the ones that we're targeting in particular um are something called the endosome so basically what happens is when a material let's say nanoparticle is taken up into a cell so it becomes internalized usually that's through a process called endocytosis when that happens those materials become encapsulated in a little vesicle and that vesicle is known as an endosome so basically it's this little almost bubble inside a cell and that endosome has a lower ph or a more acidic environment than the outside of the cell so that's kind of the the ph the the acidity that we're targeting
0: yeah and and so and it can get into the cell like a it just gets absorbed into the cell or what's that transition sort of into through the cell membrane to to reach that region?
1: Yeah. So a lot of nanomaterials um, are like taken up into the cell by endocytosis. I know that in more recent years, there has been um, the development of kind of nanoparticles that have special targeting groups on the outside um, that can basically bind to receptors on the surface and be taken up that way um my research doesn't focus so much on that component but yeah there are definitely a a bunch of different mechanisms that can be used basically to take up the nanoparticle
0: into the cell yeah interesting and presumably this solves both problems right so this solves the problem of getting it to where you need it to go but also presumably whilst in this encapsulated state you're you're preserving the chemotherapy drugs so that they're not being i suppose gobbled up by the rest of the human body as it normally does clear out things that we don't want to have in our bodies
1: exactly yeah and and one um analogy that people often use uh, in my field is the analogy of the trojan horse right where, where basically the drugs are the, the little soldiers inside the horse and they're basically delivering this this little gift of mm-hmm. a nanoparticle to the cancer cell so um yeah very much like that definitely
0: Yeah. Now where are we along the sort of development chain with these materials? Because I know it's often a very long pathway between when we start, you know, in the in the dish um, to where people can actually utilize these in in actual clinical treatments. So how far along is this work at the moment?
1: Yeah, so my particular work is still very preclinical. We're still trying to understand, you know, how different changes to the structure can impact how these nanoparticles behave and those downstream effects of that. Um, That being said, though, there are actually some um, nanoparticle systems that are either currently in clinical trials or even on the market as well. Some are available. So there definitely is, um, yeah, a movement towards that area. And we're getting closer and closer to seeing these uh, on the market, which is really exciting.
0: Yeah, very cool. Now, I just want to have, get an image of what it looks like in the lab for you. I, I assume this is what I would sort of refer to as buckets of chemistry as opposed to one nanoparticle at a time. Is that right? That you are using, like, is this a large-scale production as opposed to individual sort of creation of, of nanostructures?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, so I guess, like, at a laboratory scale, we're definitely not making, you know, tons and tons of this stuff. But, um, yeah, like, when we synthesize these nanoparticles, there would be probably, you know, thousands or even millions of nanoparticles in a single um, small volume of, um, you know, material that we have. So, um, yeah, definitely um, not heaps, but enough to look into, for sure.
0: (laughs) Yeah, look, it's fantastic stuff, and I think i am guessing this becomes part of that arsenal where we we have chemotherapy, we have immunotherapy, and we have excision and radiotherapy as well and and i'm i my suspicion is again this becomes part of what is a a multi sort of um system approach to to attacking cancer is that is that right i mean presumably it's part of that deal
1: yeah, absolutely. I think it would definitely um be helpful for you know, yeah, after you've had surgery and to clear off any remaining um, tumours or, you know, free cells. Um, So yeah, definitely in conjunction with other existing treatments for sure.
0: Well, Cynthia, thanks so much for chatting to me today. It's very exciting work. And um, I've always had a bit of a soft spot for uh, nanoparticles from my early career days. So it's good to see them being used in such an effective way for such a shocking disease that um, affects so many of us. So thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much. It's a
0: pleasure. Thanks. RRR. I'm Dr. Shane and I'm joined now with Dr. Kelsey Poole, who is a reproductive biologist and the Lafroy Research Fellow at the University of Western Australia. Kelsey, welcome to the studio. Thank you. Now, you work in a very interesting area of, of reproduction and essentially you know, how good we are at this and how good we're going to be into the future. And I want to sort of start off where your your work has been traditionally, which is in reproduction in the livestock industry and, and how that all works. So w- what sort of work do you do there? And I, I actually wasn't aware we had a reproduction problem in the livestock.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy. I think a lot of people aren't aware of this. We're almost hyper aware of our own ability to reproduce, but not in our where our food is coming from. Uh so a lot of my work really focuses on is improving uh reproduction mainly in sheep um and this is almost at the level of reproductive efficiency so I work a lot in a s- sustainable agriculture and I guess the foundation for sustainability in agriculture is is yield per animal so um, ability of that animal to reproduce so fertility is incredibly important to a lot of our producers
0: I- I only have information when it comes to reproduction. in animals on rabbits, because of the you know the, the the saying there of breathing like rabbits. What what is that like in sheep? Is it is it common to have reproductive problems?
2: Hugely common. Um, so a lot of my work has focused really heavily in male fertility. Um, I'm known as Doctor Sperm around most of the institutions that I work in, and it's amazing. You know we're we're really um, reliant upon a really small number of males per production system. And when you actually go out and test these Rams, for example, and a lot of producers aren't testing their Rams, you'll find that maybe like 50, 60% of them are not actually fertile enough to be carrying that production system. And these are prize animals, they're animals that have been used for several years. You know, they've got no idea that there is this issue of fertility.
0: Does that mean in a sort of natural reproduction sense, or can can they Can they be augmented with sort of artificial insemination and so forth where uh, I suppose things are there's some sort of level of intervention, or are they just out of the game entirely below that threshold?
2: It's a mix. So we can we can certainly use technologies such as artificial insemination where we're collecting an ejaculate and essentially choosing which of those ejaculates is actually used to inseminate females. And it's a good process because we can actually do some quality checking and find out, for example, why that male may not be able to reproduce naturally. The issue with then using his genetics in other sheep is, is this condition able to be passed on? And by bypassing this issue with reproduction, are we then passing that on? And that's something we actually see in human society quite a lot as
0: well. Yeah, so that's what I want to sort of transition to now because, you know, we all like to know how we're going as a species. Are we seeing changes in our reproductive capabilities as humans?
2: We are, and what's really scary is when we look at a, a holistic picture of how fertility has changed over time, there's been a real turning point for humanity around the 1950s. You know, we had a lot of industrialisation. Our environment became a lot more urban. And alongside these changes, we started to see a really steady decline in fertility, and that's actually around a one percent decrease in the ability of couples to conceive over the each year for the last fifty years.
0: Hang on, we took so one one percent of them, one percent of the next bit. That so, what are we talking about in terms of the overall change in in that capability over a fifty year period?
2: So we're talking about a 50% reduction. And at a biological level, we're seeing things like reduced sperm counts in men. Um, We're seeing an increasing level of disorders in women. So uh, common things like endometriosis, uh, where we've got this displacement um, of endometrial tissue throughout the body. Uh, And often the cause of the infertility is actually really hard to pin down. So we've got a decrease in the ability to reproduce. We don't 100% know why.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, when you mention endometriosis, I think it's almost ludicrous that sometimes uh, doctors are actually recommending pregnancy as a solution to that problem. But of course, it's a, one of the big factors involved in infertility.
2: Absolutely. And I think medicine is still catching up to what we know about reproductive disorders and fertility in general. I mean, when we have a lack of scientifically based recommendations that we're able to give to these couples.
0: Oh, interesting. So, you mentioned this is sort of over the last fifty years or so. What's in our environments, presumably, that is causing this reduction in fertility? And is that affecting uh, males, women, or uh, males, males and females, or both?
2: It's both. Uh, a lot of my research focuses in on male fertility because, to be quite frank, it's much easier to find the biological basis of male reproductive disorders than it is for women. Uh, we've got a few different factors here, right? Like our environment is always having this constant interplay with our physiology, um, and that includes reproductive physiology. So we've got things like climate change. We know that we've got these increasing temperatures. We've got these compounds called endocrine-disrupting compounds. Um, This can be anything from plastics that we use in, say, like food packaging or drink bottles, uh, the ink used on printed receipts, so don't touch or keep your receipt paper, it can be these phytoestrogens or plant estrogens that are present in things like our crops, our fruit and our veg, um, and herbicides and pesticides. So a lot of chemicals and things that you'd find in your household actually have the ability to, to interact with our whole system, um, and that changes the way that our body functions.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So how would one avoid those things? I mean, you just went through a short list. I'm sure the the, the full list is much longer. But that seems almost unavoidable in today's society, all of those particular items.
2: I think exposure to these things is inevitable. Uh, It's really scary, you know. You can't avoid them. And I think on a broader scale to reduce the presence of these compounds in our environment, we need to start finding suitable alternatives, so things that don't challenge our ability to reproduce. But this is kind of easier said than done. You know, we replace one plastic with another, it turns out it can still change ourselves just through a different pathway so understanding how these compounds actually cause these reproductive disorders is really important
0: yeah interesting i assume there's a huge variation from person to person too as to how much they in an individual is affected even if everyone had the exact same dose of these compounds there presumably is a fairly big variation in the response
2: Uh, I haven't specifically studied that. I assume, yes, there's quite a big interplay with things like your gut microbiome. So the way you actually metabolize these compounds can change your exposure. Um, Your general health can change how you respond to these compounds. But, I mean, it's a big study gap that's really missing. You know, we don't know what that variation is.
0: Yeah. Now, you mentioned in sheep, of course, that you don't want to pass on this problem to future generations if there is a fertility problem in that particular sheep by, by artificially sort of bypassing that natural um, process. In humans, with things like these endocrine disruptors and so forth, what's what's happening there in terms of what I might potentially pass on to my offspring in terms of the damage that's already been done to me?
2: So what's quite scary about these is it looks like a lot of these compounds actually cause epigenetic changes. So what they're doing is they're modifying the outside of our DNA, and that actually changes how we express certain genes or, you know, even things like how we behave and how we develop in later life. And a lot of my work is actually finding that these permanent epigenetic mutations are actually on the sperm cell. So it's it's that cell that's carrying your genetic material to your future offspring. A lot of these cells are still quite functional. They could still fertilize an egg. They could still contribute to an embryo but they've got these odd mutations in that genetic material that then present potentially as infertility in the future generations.
0: Yeah, interesting. Are we able to offset that in some way?
2: We've actually done some modeling, so part of my work uses our fruit flies to sort of model the long-term impacts of these. And what we recently did was ran this model where we looked at introducing these non-exposed or safe individuals into a population whose parents had been exposed to these endocrine disruptors. And you can actually see in real time, this population tries to adapt. So the brunt of the reproductive cost tends to fall on the male. These flies adapt by favoring the survival of female offspring. But what we see over multiple generations is a lack of reproductive recovery. So, you know, this population tries to keep going, uh, but this sub-fertility or a, a proportion of that population that can't reproduce actually persists.
0: This is scary stuff. So if, if, if when you're working with fruit flies, of course, you, you have many generations to study. Have you seen the complete collapse of a system of fruit flies as a result of this sort of fertility problem?
2: I haven't seen the complete collapse. I mean, we sort of play around with dosages. We're like, oh, how much can we actually give these little guys before they completely become infertile? At levels in a diet that represent, say, a diet where you're eating like soy products every day, where you were exposed to pesticides every day, like heavy sort of exposure, within sort of two to three generations, we're not really getting successful reproduction or the individuals that do survive are not particularly viable. They don't survive for very long.
0: Wow, this is the uh, scary stuff, Kelsey. So you mentioned how far our, our sort of ability to reproduce and so forth had dropped over the last 50 years. How are we tracking in terms of the human race into the future? What What are we looking at? Are we in trouble in 100 years, 200 years, 1,000? What, what's that looking like if we don't intervene?
2: I mean, the modelling is really scary, given that we've we've seen a 50% decrease in the last 50 years. We're sort of frantically trying to keep up with these medical intervent- interventions. Mm. The issue with that is that by bypassing this infertility, we are passing it on. Uh, so projections are saying sort of within the next 100 years or so, we are going to be almost 100% reliant on these reproductive technologies to actually form a viable pregnancy.
0: Yeah, interesting. There's been such a focus on, you know, reproductive capability on women over the decades, you know, and it seems as though, you know, that's something that's often thrown at women as, as them being the problem. But it, it seems in this case, like you're talking about quite a substantial issue with the male part of our population and the the quality of the sperm that they can produce. That, that seems like, you know, a shift that we need to make in terms of the way we talk about this that's quite substantial.
2: I think talking about it is actually the key, you know, There is this stigma around talking about fertility, uh, particularly, I think, with men. Mm. And I'd say that the rates of infertility or poor sperm quality that we actually currently see are much lower than what is actually out there because people don't talk about this or they don't get checked. You know, if there's an issue, they'll go straight to IVF because they assume that it's the female side of things that isn't working. Uh, So addressing that stigma, I think, is a huge part of actually recognizing this problem and treating it appropriately.
0: Yeah. Now, before I let you go, I just want to touch on, you know, your your career very much is in a, a very industry focused space. Um, how how does that connect up with your your sort of academic sort of background and so forth? Does that are you well prepared, or is working in these sorts of industries, which are really a long way from our universities, um, more problematic? I mean, how, how, what's your experience been like?
2: it's an incredibly hard but rewarding niche to work in. Um, I feel like I'm always kind of caught between two worlds because a lot of the research that is really valued by industry doesn't really float in an academic system. You know, we've got one system that's looking at your publication track record and, you know, you could find a novel protein that does absolutely nothing, but if it gets into nature, then you're the top researcher in your field. Meanwhile, on the other side of things in industry, you know, you could show years of impact. You've helped, you know, hundreds of businesses, you've improved animal welfare, Uh, you've found a biological cause of something, but it's in an agricultural species and it's just not valued in academia. You know, we don't have a nice way to coexist with industry and academia at the moment.
0: Yeah, well, it's something we certainly have to move to. I know myself, even things like the communication of science hasn't traditionally been mm-hmm. valued as much as it should have But Kelsey, it's been great talking to you. You're doing amazing work. I hope our species is in good hands and we don't all become extinct as a result of this 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 problem, but it's something we clearly need to talk a lot more about. Thanks so much for chatting to me today.
2: Thank you. Triple
0: R. I'm Dr. Shane and I'm joined now by Dr. Matthew Shaw. Matthew is from CSIRO and is a research scientist. Welcome to the studio, Matt. Thank you very
3: much. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, you work in an area that I'm personally very interested in. It's uh, how we go about extracting resources, not on Earth, but out in space from various locations in space. So, Metallurgy, first of all, let's just talk about that uh, on Earth. What, what does that normally look like? How do we go about extracting
3: metals from the Earth? Sure. So, so anything that you've got that's made out of metal has come from underground at some point. And the general process is we have geologists that will find it underground. They find ore, ore is rocks that have metals in them. The mining engineers will bring that to the surface and then the extractive metallurgist, that's me, will basically take the metals out of that rock. And so it's our job to take this rock that's got metals in it and turn it into some sort of usable product.
0: Yeah. And, and what does that process of extraction look like? Is that high temperatures? Is it, you know, some sort of sifting? <laughs> How does it it's work?
3: a little bit of everything, I'll be honest. So we have two main areas. We have mineral processing. That is when we take the rock, we crush it down. The metals in the rocks are found in minerals, right? And so what we want to do is we want to make a mineral concentrate. And we use, as you mentioned, we use like high temperatures and low temperatures. We use chemistry. We use all sorts of interesting different effects to basically take those minerals out and concentrate them into a concentrate. The second stage is what we call reduction. And so reduction is when we take this mineral, the metal is in there, but it's bonded chemically to oxygen and silicon and and sulfur, these kinds of elements. And we want to basically tear it out at an atomic level. And we use, again, we use normally high temperatures and chemistry and uh, electrochemistry as well. So if you've got aluminium, that'll be using chemistry, electrochemistry and heat all together to basically extract that aluminium out. And all metals are made with some variety of, of those three interesting now before we talk about in
0: space and on <laughs> other other you know solar system bodies how much of this process is dependent on things that we take for granted on earth like for example our gravitational field and the strength of that and uh you know the fact that we're in a oxygen and nitrogen rich environment how, uh, you know, how much does that impact what you're doing in metallurgy
3: well so much so i've, I've experienced some pretty cool uh places on earth some extreme conditions here on earth and and slightly changes here but everything that we do is kind of predicated on this idea of as you mentioned gravity and pressure is a big one another big one is access to carbon right and water these things we use a lot in extractive metallurgy but in space we don't really have access to those we've got to get a bit more creative
0: if we go somewhere like the moon so there's there's a lot of excitement at the moment the as we're recording this interview, we're somewhere between the Artemis 1 and the Artemis 2 um, missions. So these are the you know, the return missions of humans back to the moon by I think Artemis 3 will be the deal. But, you know, there's much more there in terms of setting up long-term facilities and so forth on on the moon. Why do we want to extract materials from somewhere like the moon rather than just, you know, whack it on the back of a ginormous rocket and take it up? Is it, is it just too expensive to do it that way?
3: It is. It's very expensive to send things to space in general, but specifically the moon. So the number at the moment, if you wanted to hop on what's called the CLPS program, which is the commercial lunar payload systems that NASA is kind of running, the current estimate is about $1.2 million per kilogram. And that's a kilogram of anything, right? Water to drink, milk, chips, right? Maybe some some metals. So anything you want to send up there is really expensive. So anything that we could resource there is going to save us lots of money. And so we probably wouldn't take up complex, uh, we wouldn't make on in situ complex electronics and such, but we could make structures, right? So you could use ceramics from the moon to build a house, for example, or you could use metals to fabricate some sort of equipment and things like that. So the general idea is, look, we're going to go there, but instead of doing it like a camping trip where we just pack everything in the car and go, we want to really be using the things there to build larger structures and to really help us get going while we're up there yeah interesting
0: now when we we look at the moon i think it was um i'm trying to remember which astronaut said it but you know this sort of amazing desolation you know this idea that there's nothing there that's kind of the image it's either that or cheese i think historically we've uh, had this view of the moon but what what is up there I i know at the moment there's a lot of activity with regards to interest in
3: water but what what is up there that we can utilize yeah, so and it's a really good question because on one side we think we know what we what we're getting into, but on the other side we've got a lot to learn about the moon. We've we've literally just scratched the surface. So what we do know is that there are some metals, so the lunar geology is is relatively similar to that of Earth. The minerals are slightly different, but we still have elements like iron and aluminum, titanium, silicon, all of these things that we could probably use well. And as you mentioned, water. So water is not found much on the surface of the moon. However, at the North and South Pole, there are some really, really cold, dark regions. They never see sunlight. And we're pretty sure that there's water ice in there. So the interest in that is obviously you can turn water into oxygen and hydrogen, oxygen being good for life support and oxygen and hydrogen together just being rocket fuel. So if we could refuel rockets in space, that would be massive. So that kind of game changing innovation would be, that's what NASA has been targeting in this field for decades now. If we can refuel things in space, that's where it's at. And how much equipment
0: would we have to sort of take up, you know, back
3: to that problem of of cost to be able to do this sort of processing? So for small scale Things it's not too bad. There's a mission called Viper that you can look up that NASA is sending up relatively, I say soon, but in the next few years. And that is the size of a very large car. It's a, it's a rover that's going to go into one of these really dark, cold places and have a look at the ice that we're pretty sure is there and analyze it, tell us what it's about. And so that kind of equipment at the moment, would we'll be looking at just a basic rocket launch, a lander that's got some processing equipment on it. That's more of a kind of showing us or demonstrating what what we can do and how we would do it in terms of in the future we'd be probably looking at slightly larger facilities but we're not we're not big right because when we talk about things in space it's all very highly optimized it's very light so if we could you know make one ton of fuel in a year which is not very much that would still be amazing like just having that already in space outside of earth's gravity well is just a game changer for travel in space
0: yeah one of the things of course that is uh Something we don't think about often with the Moon, of course, is that the the normal weathering conditions that we have here are not uh, available to us on the Moon. So that means a lot of the dust, a lot of the components that are on the Moon are very sharp, which is something people often don't think about. Is is that sort of going to be a challenge for for the way we go about some of this material, the fact that
3: the the material itself may be quite different to what we're used to processing on the Earth? Very much so. So yes, the the lunar regolith, the regolith is kind of the dusty, unconsolidated layer on the surface of the moon. And it's very interesting. It's got some cool properties, but you're right, the dust on the moon is insane. So it's formed by micrometeoric impact. So very, very sharp, shard-like, almost glassy material. And it's kind of really electrostatic. It's sticky. It's everywhere. It's absolutely horrendous. It is probably one of the biggest challenges we face in going back to the moon. So... That's going to be really challenging in terms of technology, of how we stop that destroying our equipment, right? Because that's one of the, the problems is if we do things like we do here on Earth, it's not going to work. It's all going to break and it's way too far away to repair easily. So we definitely have to be considering either mitigating that, getting rid of the dust entirely and certainly not creating more here
0: the moon you know three and a half days i'm there i'm back it's you know, it's a relatively short journey but if we talk about mars which is you know the big dream i suppose for many how do things change there we've got what 0.8 of um our gravity here on earth or, or you know close to it uh but there's a lot of different materials is there some really interesting stuff
3: there or do we just not know that yet Again, we're suffering kind of the same issue that we do with the Moon. Is We've scratched the surface, but we've got a lot to learn about Mars and its geology and what resources are there. What we can say, which is really exciting, is that there is carbon in the atmosphere of Mars. So the Moon doesn't have an atmosphere, which is kind of exciting in and of itself. On Mars, it does have a bit of an atmosphere. And NASA has already demonstrated with their MOXIE experiment that they've extracted oxygen from carbon dioxide on mars which is pretty exciting but what that means is that this is a really when it comes to metallurgy and astrometallurgy this is really good for us because again we use a lot of carbon here on earth it's very good at making metals and if we already have that on mars and we know that there's iron in the rocks on mars that's going to make our job quite a lot easier it's still going to be challenging to develop that tech and send it up there but probably slightly easier to extract metals on mars than on the moon yeah interesting
0: Matthew, we've been talking a lot about you know the Moon, Mars, but in developing these technologies, do you think that will shift the way we go about all of this sort of uh, material extraction here on
3: Earth? I suspect so. I suspect that the type of fields that we have to look into and the innovation that we need to make to get there is going to be very, very relevant here on Earth. So, for example, if I wanted to make iron on the Moon, what does that process look like, right? I mean, it's got to be a long way away, so probably remotely operated. We're moving towards that here on Earth, but it's a challenge. What else? Well, I need to be able to operate, you know, with high energy efficiency. I don't want to be wasting energy. There's not massive energy grids up there. So it needs to be an energy efficient process. Okay, that's good. Well, what about these these chemicals? I mentioned we use carbon. Well, we don't have carbon on the moon. So if we're going to take it up there, we could, but we want to recycle all of it. Zero waste processing on the moon if we're doing that. or not use it at all. We could use electrochemical processes and just electricity to make this metal. So if we could have a remotely operated process that's energy efficient and doesn't use chemicals or recycles them all, that's probably relevant here on Earth. Yeah. And just finally, Matt, do you, um, do you sort of simulate
0: the, the moon-type environment in the lab somehow? Uh, how do you go about
3: that here on the Earth, like testing these, these things in our environment? We try to. It is very difficult. So we would love to use real moon rocks to test things, but apparently they're expensive. I don't know. It, it's ridiculous to me. So we use a material called simulant material, which is basically we've analyzed the rocks on the moon. We take that and we make a material in a rock or regolith, this dirt, that is kind of similar in composition and acts similarly. And then in our labs, yeah, we'll we'll pull hard vacuums in these vacuum chambers and basically try and simulate as best as possible the conditions on the moon. But look, we're going to have to get there and really start testing things out because it's very difficult to simulate those conditions in a lab. Yeah, interesting stuff.
0: Dr. Matthew Shaw, thanks so much for chatting to me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Dr. Shane and I'm joined now with Melissa Papini from Curtin University and the Parent Institute. Welcome to the studio, Melissa. Hi. Now, you work in the area of traumatic brain injury. I assume we're talking mild here, so we're talking concussion. Talk us through what that means exactly.
4: So, um, there are three grades of severity, um, mild, moderate and severe, and mild traumatic brain injury is a concussion um it's the least severe but the most common it accounts for about 80% of all traumatic brain injuries um and there are a lot of misconceptions i think that people have about whether or not they've had a concussion things like you you don't necessarily have to lose consciousness you don't necessarily have to black out you could just hit your head feel a bit funny and you might feel a bit funny a few days
0: afterwards that's still a concussion mm. And what are the sort of short-term and the longer-term implications of concussion?
4: So in the short-term, um, the symptoms are pretty broad. They can be anything from you have a headache for a few days, you feel a bit dizzy, sick, um, maybe you uh, have a change in your sleeping habits. Um, you can get confused, have memory problems, sort of concentration. Um, but most people, these go away. Um, we usually set it about three month mark, but most people recover much sooner than that. Um, but in the long term, um, it's about 50% of people actually that experience these symptoms long term. Um, and they, in some people, just don't go away. So you could have a headache from one concussion for years, you might have insomnia for years, and it can be really debilitating to people's mm-hmm. quality of life.
0: Yeah, indeed. And so, if I have this sort of injury and you you whack me in a MRI machine or a, a CT scanner, do you see anything, or is this completely um, not within our range of imaging at the moment?
4: No. So that's one of the biggest problems is it's invisible in those kind of um, situations. So if you have a concussion, you go to hospital. Sometimes they'll give you a CT scan or an MRI just to check for bleeding or a skull fracture, but the type of bleeding, you don't get a skull fracture with a concussion usually unless it's a complicated concussion. Um, And bleeding, it's microbleeds, you can't see it, the scans just aren't sensitive enough, so it just comes back and it looks like it it would look the same if you scanned it the day before the concussion. So that's a really big problem.
0: So presumably then the Uh, the diagnosis of concussion is based on some sort of cognitive interview or or just a symptom-based diagnosis? Is that how it works? Um, Yes.
4: Yes. Um, From my studies and my own experience with concussion, um, it pretty much relies on the concussed person to convey their symptoms, uh, convey the situation. They might not remember the situation, as is the nature of the concussion, because it can make you forget, or you could black out. Um, And then the doctor will look at you and say, I think you've got these symptoms, you seem all right, but the symptom, and then send you home. But when you get home over the next few days or weeks, those symptoms start to appear, um, because it's not a a static injury, it's actually a dynamic injury that gets worse over time. So your body trying to protect itself, um, ends up creating a bit more damage and then your symptoms start to appear after that.
0: Yeah, so that's fascinating. So the dynamic nature of that injury is not that there is more impacts occurring, but something that our body is doing to presumably repair what has happened. What What's the dynamic nature of that?
4: So um, the prime, it's sort of a two injury phase um, injury. So in the first phase, obviously you get hit, you brain gets squished, your cells get damaged, some of them are torn or stretched or deformed, um, and then a whole biochemical cascade sort of happens. Um, you, it's all inflammation, um, trying to limit damage, um, and then this triggers what we call secondary degeneration, which is that later phase where, in order to mitigate the damage that's been happening, your body heightens up this defense, which ends up um, causing more damage. So you've got one cell that's damaged. So if one axon in one um, bit of your white matter is damaged, that will tell that um, cell next to it all, actually we're we're going to be damaged too. And it sort of precipitates like that until it creates much larger, more widespread damage. Uh, throughout the brain rather than just the place you got hit.
0: Yeah, interesting. And presumably, I mean there's there's a lot of misconceptions around this, isn't there, that concussion is a mild a mild problem. I mean what you're talking about is quite substantial within the brain.
4: Yes. It's not a mild injury at all. It's actually a bit of a misnomer, that one. Um people don't take concussion too seriously. Um there are a lot of reasons for that. Maybe um they want to go back to playing sport quicker or they want to go back to work or whatever the motivation might be if they haven't been seriously knocked out they don't have any visible um fracture or anything there's no doctor saying anything except just rest then it seems mild but it's insidious in that at the start maybe it can seem mild Mm. but it does progress and it does worsen
0: yeah interesting Uh, it's, it's it's fascinating hearing about that i mean there's so many parts of our body when we injure them you know, through infection and other things, it does get worse, and we're very knowledgeable about that, but we don't talk yeah. about concussion as something that's dynamic and gets worse over time. So that it's it's interesting hearing that that reflection on that. Now, in your research, you're looking specifically at ways to, I suppose, to detect some of this with biomarkers. How how would we go about that? What sort of biomarkers are you looking into?
4: Um, well, for the imaging side of things, that would be um, – a more sensitive type of MRI or diffusion MRI. Mm -hmm. It uses water molecules, the movement of water through cells uh, to tell us about the microscopic neuroarchitecture. So if you imagine a very healthy brain and water hits a cell, that's a barrier. Um, If you've damaged a cell, that water will keep moving until something else stops it. So that barrier is gone. So we can understand especially over time if you did multiple scans so at the start there might be a lot of i don't know inflammation in the brain that might stop the water moving because there's so much water there but then later on that water might be moving really freely compared to a healthy person's brain that indicates damage um lost um neurons axons and the way the bundles of white matter change after injury, we can see all of that with that type of scan. Interesting. And second to that um, is blood biomarkers. So we have a blood tests for everything else, um, but we don't have a lot of blood tests relating to the brain. Um, but like any like any organ in the body, if you damage it, your body clears away that damage. It can't sit in the brain. It has to go. So the processes in which that happens are still a bit of a mystery. <laughs> um, but some of it is released into cerebrospinal fluid. Some of it's released into the, into the blood. So these are fragments of the cell that are damaged. So if you've got a bit of axonal cytoskeleton in your blood, you probably shouldn't. And that's a sign. Your brain's been
0: injured, and there's axonal damage there. Hmm. So, so that's interesting. So, presumably, then you know, we would have to, you know, when someone presents for stroke, uh, so stroke, not not stroke, (laughs) when they present for brain damage um, caused by or any sort of damage caused by concussion, there there would need to be a time sequence of these measurements to to pick that up. Yeah, I mean, if you did some of those scans too early presumably you might get a false negative in terms of how severe the person's condition is. Is that right?
4: Yes, that's that's exactly right. So um, a lot of the research um, is done over sort of different time points. Um, it's not really standardised as of yet. So some of these, especially the blood biomarkers, some of these taken um, in, if you don't, if you take them after 12 hours following the injury, you're not going to find them. Um, Some of them get cleared out after 24 hours, um, some of them even six hours. Mm -hmm. But it needs to be a sort of serial sampling um, at different time points. There are very few that sort of have a weird kinetic profile where they suddenly drop after a concussion and then just start rising. And it's been seen all the way up to a year or more.
0: Wow. Yeah. And presumably, would we be able to identify also at that point who's more likely to have a have a longer term problem than those that um, that don't? Is that just due the severity in the concussion, or is it person dependent?
4: Um, that's a tricky one. Uh, there are a lot of factors that um, research has highlighted that mean that someone might have prolonged recovery. Um, one of them is being female. Mm-hmm. Um, the other is having pre-existing mental health issues. Um, so maybe you've already got um, anxiety or depression, you will have a prolonged recovery most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, people who've got um who've already had a concussion, so if, if someone plays footy, they've had five concussions in a season, that last one might just be the one that longer to recover for and the unfortunate part about that is we're trying but not a lot of people um, have included those demographics in studies um, because they might influence the other factors so they might influence um, whether or not this cohort recovers or these players can return to sport. So often, um, especially um, neuropsychological issues, those people are excluded from the work,
0: which is a shame. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, there there's some of the key factors that would play into change in lifestyle and change in capability. But if we're not measuring them and we're not monitoring them, then sort of research we can do is is quite quite limited presumably and uh, you know especially i I could see where women in particular are dealt with very differently in the health system and you know the engagement level there is much lower um as as a result and so you can imagine that that would affect their recovery as well
4: yeah i mean if um there's a lot of um issues surrounding Um, women's healthcare treatment in general.
3: Mm. There
4: is um, a lot more being done now. Um, Toward the end of my PhD, I'm going to zero in on specifically a cohort of women who've had a concussion and see if female sex does mediate it or if it is just being ignored or Mm. work out what it is, basically. That's what I'm trying to do.
0: Yep. Well, Melissa, it all sounds uh, great. So uh, good luck with the ongoing work in your PhD. This is one of those very... Problematic areas of our society that we don't talk about enough, and concussion obviously affects a lot of people. You mentioned yourself; you've experienced yeah. it. I had a very close friend of mine who was suffering anxiety and depression years after um, her concussion playing football. And yeah, uh, I think we don't we don't hear about those stories or understand the connectivity between them and the events as much as we otherwise should. So, keep doing the great work, and thanks so much for chatting to us today.
2: Thank you. RRR.
0: Well, folks, that pretty much brings us to the end of the show today. Thank you so much for listening to Einstein the Gogo and of course to 3 Triple R. There's a lot of good radio coming up. Uh, Edit's coming up next. And we will, of course, be back next week to give you more science. Uh, some huge weeks coming up, actually. The guest pool that has been sent to me over the last few months is mind-blowing. So you're going to have some, uh, some great science coming your way over the next few weeks. Thank you so much again for everyone who supported Triple R during the Radiothon period. We very much appreciate that. Thanks for listening, and we'll chat to you again next week. Remember, science is everywhere. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Go Go. A weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.